We turn this morning to Nehemiah chapter 9. We take our text out of verse 31. If we just look at the beginning of the chapter, we have the circumstance and situation here being great grief in Israel. We read in chapter 9, verse 1, Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And then we have this situation that's explained here in verses five, 4 and 5. Then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua and Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani, and cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua and Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Odijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the earth of thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all. And the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Thou art the Lord thy God, who didst choose Abram and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gave him the name of Abraham. And then follows the history of Israel. And we're going to take it up at verse 28. We turn to verse 28. We'll read that to the end of the chapter. Relating here the history of Israel and their unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness over against that. Verse 28, But after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. And therefore thou leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies, and testified against them that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. Yet they dealt proudly, and hearkened not unto thy commandments but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testified against them by thy spirit in thy prophets, yet would they not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the hands of the people of the land. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keepest covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee, that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, and on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. 
Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us. For thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies, wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them, and in the large and fat land which thou gavest before them, neither turned they from their wicked works. Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. And then there follows the names of those who sealed their name on that. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. As I stated, we take verse 31 as our text this morning. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. For thou art a gracious and merciful God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the occasion of this history is the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. For the first time in many, many years, that celebration took place. The Israelites at that occasion spent time, as we read there in the beginning of the chapter, in Bible reading, especially of the law, and the remaining hours were spent in confession and in worship. And that's now what chapter 8 had recorded. The feast was just over when the Jews in Jerusalem were plunged into a demonstration of mourning. Fasting, sitting in sackcloth, as is described there in chapter 9, casting dust on their heads and confessing their and their father's sins. We read now, after having already spent time considerable in worship, they now spend a quarter of the day reading the law, a quarter of the day confessing and worshiping, so that we have here over a six-hour worship service taking place. It's at that occasion now that the Levites come, according to verses 4 and 5. And the Levites come in order to call upon God, but also we read a word of admonition that's directed to the Israelites. They cried with a loud voice, verse 4, and then what do they say? Verse 5, stand up, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. The Levites come and they rebuke the Israelites because of their much grief. Now, there's something here that requires our closer investigation. Why is it that the Levites rebuked the people? Wasn't it good that the people were consumed with their sin and that they were sorrowful as a result? Another focus had to receive due attention. And even another had to be more primary. And that was God's faithfulness. And so the contemplation of the revelation of God's will rightly leads the people to confess their sins, but it ought also bring them to stand up before Jehovah God and to praise and to adore his great and glorious name for his faithfulness. As important as sorrow for sin is and confession of sin, 
The child of God does not stay in that realm of sorrow. He must know the joy of forgiveness. And he must know the wonder of what God's done for him. And that's the admonition here of the Levites. You've examined yourselves. You've seen your sin. You know your sorrow. Now, stand up and let's praise and exalt the great and glorious God for his faithfulness in forgiving and showing us mercy. Beloved, that's our perspective this morning by God's grace. We've examined ourselves. We see our sin, our unworthiness. We know the reality of the weeping with sackcloth and ashes. In that act of confessing, we have reason for joy because we know the wonder of the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. And knowing that sin and knowing that guilt moves us all the more to see the greatness of God's mercy and God's goodness. We confess our sins in the context of the amazing, marvelous faithfulness of Jehovah God. The Levites then proceed to give an account of God's grace toward Israel throughout this history. And this chapter is very similar in that way to the historical Psalms. We find, for instance, Psalm 106. That's laying out a history of the whole of the Israelite experience. Giving an account of that history. And why, does it, why is that done? To show God's faithfulness. Not to drag all those individuals again under because of their sin and unfaithfulness, but to set forth this as its focus, the faithfulness of Jehovah God. Stand up, bless the Lord. We know and we confess our sins this morning, but our sins are not the only focus. The greatness of our sins magnifies the faithfulness of our God. And we are drawn to the cross and the wonder work of what Christ has done for us. We therefore take as our theme our gracious and merciful God, noting, first of all, his faithfulness, secondly, the reason for that faithfulness, and finally, the thanksgiving. Thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. The faithfulness of God is seen in that. God says to you, and God says to me this morning, I'm not going to deal with you as you deserve. Having examined ourselves and having looked at ourselves in light of God's commandments and in light of God's law, we know what we deserve. And such is the case with Israel. Israel had brought shame to the cause of Jesus Christ. They were proud. They insisted on doing things their way. And as a result, Israel had tried to dominate every area of their life. They wanted things done the way that they would do it. And they desired, they wanted, and so they took what they wanted. And they tried to live their lives in that way. Every time they ran into the wall of God's righteousness, God's judgment then would come upon them. And God would reveal himself as a righteous and a holy God. And God would remind Israel again and again, as this history is recounted, that he is the one who will stand. He is the one who will speak. And he must be obeyed. His word must be obeyed. Israel must not be centered around herself. Israel is to be centered around God and around his glory and around his greatness. Now you and I find ourselves similarly living our lives often for self. As if our lives revolve around 
ourselves. It's what we want that's important. It's what we want to do that we will do. And rather than centering our lives around God, his will, we do our own thing. And we will walk in the way that we want. We'll set our eyes on the things that we desire to set our eyes on. We'll pursue the lust, the pleasures that we want. And there's so many ways in which we express this. Pride, esteeming ourselves above others. We think of ourselves more highly than those around us. And so we're looking down on them. And we're despising them often, if not outrightly, internally. Some show disobedience by participating openly in activities that God forbids. Drunken parties, going places they ought not go. Not only a violation of God's commandments, bringing shame upon also God's name and God's glory. What does it mean to live an antithetical life? What does it mean to walk as a Christian, a follower of Christ? Being proud, living for ourselves, showing no compassion toward those around us, no care for others. Our life is about us. Beloved, we need to think about what sin is. We need to think about what our sin does to us, how our sin works in us, that it causes us to despise others, to despise God, despise the goodness of God, and then to give occasion for the enemies of Christ also to blaspheme. We backbite, we slander. Our tongues become so evil. And when the adults of the church are walking in that manner, it's not surprising then that the children, the young people, also behave as they do. If we're walking with the world in our homes, what do we expect of our children, our young people? They're going to follow in our footsteps. Sin so easily, so quickly finds a foothold and the devil begins to have his way in our lives. And we're living now for ourselves, our own glory. We need to get on our knees then and repent. And we confess our sin. Do we know the seriousness of our sin? Do we know that that sin deserves everlasting damnation in hell? And do we know the horror then of that sin and its effects, not on us, not just on others, but the living God? God is a righteous God who demands justice. And so when we hear from God the seriousness of our sins, and when we're crushed by the knowledge of the horror of that sin, we also then need to hear this word of God. I've put away your sins. I'm not going to punish you for those sins. I will not utterly forsake you. That's the word of grace. And that's the marvelous message of the gospel. The word of grace is a word of forgiveness. God comes to a needy people, a people who acknowledge that we have not lived as we are. We are not conducting ourselves for the glory of God as we should. And God's word is a word of mercy. Now, the word of forgiveness doesn't mean that God does nothing with regard to our sin. God does something. God has to do something. God takes those sins and he punishes them with his own son. Jesus Christ stood in our place and he took upon himself that punishment that we deserve. God then chastises us because of those sins. But we know the glorious doxology of Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation 
The condemnation has been lifted. Jesus took it upon himself. And now the chastisement? Yes, as a man sows, so he will reap. There's going to be consequences. Consequences that remind us of our own weaknesses until we die. Israel had already experienced some of those consequences. They were experiencing chastisements that were for their good. Forgiven by God, and yet feeling the judgments, feeling the chastisements upon us till we die. And inclined then to think, perhaps I'm not forgiven. Perhaps there is still something that God is holding against me. The God in his love, again and again, assuring Israel through prophets and through his word of his faithfulness and of his mercy. And so God does to you and to me. God desires that we learn about him so that we know him and we know the wonder of his love and his faithfulness. We know the horror of our sins, but we also know the wonder of the gospel and what Jesus Christ did for us. And the consequences of sin drive us to the cross. The consequences drive us to see our own neediness, our own weakness, and our complete dependence upon him. In all of this, again, I need to know, and you need to know, what I'm experiencing is not punishment. What I'm experiencing is the hand of my father's love. It's not retribution. It's not vengeance. That was all taken on my Savior, Jesus Christ. Every sin punished on the cross. All God's dealings with me now are chastisements. They're all in love. And they're all expressions of his goodness and his mercy. Now the practical application of that then is when the word of God comes to you and comes to me exposing our sin, don't run. Don't try to run away from that word. Don't try to reject that word. Don't try to run away from the preaching of that word. Don't try to flee the elders, the deacons, when they're coming with words of admonition and caution. Don't try to run from your parents when your parents come to you with a word of caution, a word of concern with regard to your walk and your conduct. Humble yourselves, as Israel did of old. When you open your Bible this afternoon for your family devotions or your personal devotions and you read something in there that pricks you, don't quickly shut the Bible and put it away. Confess your sin. Acknowledge your sin before God. Listen. And when parents rebuke us then, when a loving, concerned friend comes and shows us a fault, don't respond in pride. Don't right away try to find occasion to find something against that individual. Humble yourself before God. Acknowledge your sin, but then also the wonder of God's forgiveness and the mercy that is in Jesus Christ. As severe as God's chastisements are upon us, they are not what we deserve. It's important for us to understand that, and that's what the Levites here are setting before the people. In the midst of their sorrow, in the midst of their deep, deep remorse, they need to know the wonder of God's mercy and God's grace, and God's love. Sometimes we can feel as though the hand of God is on us very heavily. And we're inclined to say, under that burden, I don't deserve this. Or there's the other extreme. We experience hardship. Perhaps we lose a spouse, we lose a child. 
a sibling maybe becomes sick or we become sick and we're humbled and we're tempted to say, I'm such a great sinner. I deserved all of this. Both perspectives are foolish. And we must not talk so foolishly. We did not get what we deserved. We deserved way worse than anything that this life could bring us. We deserved death and everlasting hell. We deserve to be banished forever before the presence of Jehovah God. That's what we deserve. But God does not deal with us as we deserve. God deals with us in mercy. And in God's mercy, God did not utterly consume or destroy Israel. Why? There's only one reason. For thy great mercy's sake. God is a merciful God. That simply means God is a kind God. And literally what we have here is God is a God of pardons. Isn't that beautiful? God is a God of pardons. He's a God who delights to pardon. And we know ourselves and we know that we need to be forgiven again and again and again and again. God does not deal with us as we deserve because he dealt with Jesus Christ in our place. And now his response to you and to me is, I am a God who delights in pardon. That forgiveness is not conditional upon anything you are, anything you do. God freely pardons those whom he loves. And that's mercy. Mercy is pity, it's compassion upon those who are in the midst of distress. Am I hiding sin? Are you hiding sin? Don't do that. Don't wait for your sin to be exposed by your parents, by your spouse, by the church. Repent. Confess your sins. Acknowledge that sin before God. Sometimes we fear the exposure of that sin. We're afraid that if my sin becomes known, then there's going to be shame. There's going to be guilt. We all are concerned about that. But do you fear the chastisement of God? There again, we do, don't we? We don't want to be chastened by God. But we have to understand this. God deals with us mercifully, and God deals with us kindly. And God, in his goodness and in his love, will expose your and my sin. One thing I've learned as a pastor through the years is that glorious truth. God will expose sin. And God will do it out of love for those involved. You have a God who will not treat you as you deserve to be treated. God works grace in the hearts of his children. And God brings us to confess our sin, to repent, and to know the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. Now, confessing our sin, there may be people that will treat us badly. There may be some that will look down on us. But Jehovah God, he will not. And he will work grace in the hearts of his children as well, that they humble themselves, not to rise up in pride over against you, but to embrace and receive you in love. And you've seen that. You've experienced that. Individuals confessing sin before the church and the church warmly embracing them in love and acknowledging the forgiveness and the wonder of God's goodness and God's mercy. Repent, beloved, and experience the mercy, the love of our Heavenly Father. That's what the Levites here we're directing the people to know the wonder of that mercy. 
You know that love. You know that faithfulness. Look at how God has dealt with you throughout the years. Acknowledge your sin. That's good. But now stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be his glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. That's the mercy. That's the thankfulness that is ours this morning. As we come to the table of the Lord, and as we're reminded of the cross and what Christ did for us, we do so in the awareness of how great our sin is, not only, but the wonder of the mercy of Jehovah God. God is a God of abundant pardons. And the mercy of God was displayed on the cross when Jesus gave his body and shed his blood for you. Thou art a gracious and a merciful God. Again and again, we find that refrain through the Old Testament, through the Psalms. And again and again, beloved, that's the refrain that comforts and encourages us in our lives. God is a gracious and a merciful God. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. God could have caused Israel to become extinct. He could have cut them off. And reading this chapter, when we read of all of the things they did, we would say, why didn't God? Why didn't God just cast them off? But he did not. He preserved a remnant by his grace and by his mercy alone. And God's grace is his undeserving favor. He shows favor. He shows love again and again and again. And God demonstrates what he is able to do with a sinful rebellious people. He's able to take them, forgive them through the blood of his Savior, strengthen them with the power of grace in order that they live thankful, holy lives before him, and lift them to heights of victory that they never would have ever been able to imagine. You deny him. You slap him in the face by walking contrary to his will. With Israel of old, we're tempted to rise up to kill the prophets who would rebuke us. We don't want to hear that. But God, in his mercy, does not forsake us. He shows favor, even when we deserve wrath. And there's only one explanation. The wonderful goodness, the mercy of Jehovah God. This is why God did not desire the Israelites wallowing continually in sin. And this is why God also desires that we too knowing our sin, knowing our unworthiness, are brought to the joy and the wonder of that forgiveness that's in Jesus Christ. It's why God desires that we stand up, that we lift our eyes, look away from self, and look to the glory and the greatness of Jehovah God. There are those who are consumed with their sin and they never get over it. And that was the concern here of the prophets, the concern of the Levites, the Israelites were burdened with their sin. Now, that's a good thing from one perspective. But God is not praised when they just continue to persist in that sorrow and impress upon others that sorrow. And pretty soon it becomes a matter of pride. I'm more sorrowful than you are. And I'm more worthy of compassion than you. We don't earn salvation by the depths of our grief and sorrow. Stand up, the Levite said. Bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be that glorious name. They needed to look to God's mercy. And that consideration would lead them to thankfulness. And beloved, so it is with you and with me. 
looking away from ourselves, we look to God's goodness and God's mercy. And that consideration moves us to gratitude and to thankfulness for what great things God has done. And that's the thanksgiving here that we see evident in our text. How will you respond? How will I respond? Israel responds according to the last verses here of the chapter. And because of this, we will make a sure covenant and write it. And our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. They reaffirm their commitment to live in covenant faithfulness to their God. They made a sure covenant. They wrote it and they sealed it. And chapter 10 then records the names of those who put their signature to it. They did not pledge to walk without sin. That would be impossible. They're still sinners. But they pledged to walk in thankfulness to their God. And that's what we do, beloved, this morning. As we come to the table of the Lord, confessing our sins, laying hold upon the mercy and the grace of God, we vow to walk in obedience and thankfulness to our God for what great things he's done for us. We're a thankful people. And we celebrate the unfailing mercy, the faithfulness of our God. While we confess our sin through tears, we cling to the mercy and the kindness of Jehovah God in Jesus Christ. I will not be crushed because of my sin. I will not be destroyed because of my sin. Jesus was crushed in my place. And he covered all my sins. He took the full punishment that I deserve and the weight of the wrath of God. And out of gratitude then, what is your and my response? We are servants. That's verse 36. Behold, we are servants this day. And for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. To be a servant is one who acknowledges Jehovah God as my Lord. It's a privilege that I serve God. It's a privilege that I obey him, that I seek to keep his commandments and walk humbly before him. We confess our joy in his covenant faithfulness and our desire now in thankfulness to live unto him, to walk in good works, which he has before ordained that we would walk in them. And we desire to show that joy and that thankfulness toward him. We desire to show that love, that devotion, in all of our lives. Beloved, we come to the table of the Lord this morning, confessing our great need for Christ. Not only do we need him for the wonder of forgiveness, we need him for the strength to go forward as servants of Jehovah God, that we might walk in thankfulness, that we might praise him and adore him and delight in his commandments, that with that small beginning, we seek the fullness of the joy that is ours in him. And we come to the table with this blessed assurance that he will strengthen my faith and he will work in me the grace to put off that old man and to put on the new and to live a thankful, obedient life of gratitude. We renew our commitment to live for him and not for ourselves. And there we go back to where we started. To our shame. Our lives often are about me, myself, about what I want, what I desire. When the Holy Spirit takes hold of a person, he doesn't just polish the outward appearance. When the Spirit takes hold of a person, he takes hold of the heart, and he makes us new creatures in Christ, and he fills us with his grace, 
and he works in us. This awareness and willingness. I am a servant, and I delight in the service of my Lord. And I live now, not for self. I live for Christ, and I live for his glory. And I desire to give him all praise, all thankfulness for what wondrous pardon he has worked on my behalf. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for revealing our sin, exposing it, but bringing us not merely to know how wretched we are, but also the thanksgiving to thee for a Savior in whom there is forgiveness and pardon. And the wondrous joy that is ours as we seek to live as servants of Jehovah God in thankfulness. Strengthen and bless us now as we look to thy word and as we partake of the sacrament. For Jesus' sake, amen.